This is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 through 18. Thanks for reading. Absolutely. Good morning. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. The word of the Lord. Lord, uh, guide us now uh, into uh, this good, um, somewhat hard <laughs> truth that hopefully will prepare our hearts well uh, to come to this table and receive um, what we just sang, which is only you are worthy. Uh, and at this table, uh, we, we get what you deserved uh, because you took what we deserved. Uh, so minister to our hearts, uh, teach us, Lord Jesus, uh, about how to walk in wisdom uh, in the face of, of injustice. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Well, I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth. Uh, Randy had an emergency. Randy is the pastor of the Granny White congregation. Uh, his mother fell and broke her femur on Friday. So he's in Louisiana. So um, I'm going to be here and then I'll head back to Granny White and just came from there. But um, there are three things in this passage that um, pray for him, by the way, if you think about it, pray for his mom. Uh, three things in this passage that Sue's just read for us. Uh, that I would love for us to consider uh, to prepare us to come to the table. Remember, we're in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, um, and we're talking about the ways of wisdom and how do we walk with wisdom in this, uh, as Ecclesiastes says, life under the sun, life that we live here on this earth. And so the three things uh, that I think we can lean into uh, in this passage in particular uh, one is this, the fact of folly. Uh, the fact that um, there is all sorts of unjust, broken, wrong things that we do and will experience in this world. And, and facing and embracing that, uh, the fact of it. The second thing is this, uh, facing that folly with wisdom. That we can face it with wisdom or we can face it uh, with folly. And then uh, the third thing is footholds for fearing the Lord in the midst of folly. Okay, that's a lot of Fs. So, <laughs> fact of folly, the fact that it's there. Uh, I think sometimes we live in denial or, or believe that it can just all be wiped out. Fighting fall with wisdom and then footholds for fearing the Lord amidst folly. Okay, so the fact of folly or facing folly, because this... 
These sorts of circumstances that we just read about in Ecclesiastes, they drive us somewhere, all right? So uh, how many of you have been watching the Women's World Cup? Yes, show of hands. Um, We are missing, we are currently missing the final right now. Uh, It's happening right now, which is folly that they play it at this time in the morning. Uh, It's madness, I guess it's in France, so what can we say? But So please do not say anything to me if you know what's going on in that. But uh, I played soccer and there's a rule in soccer. And the rule is this, that the second foul always gets the red card, right? That the second offense, the second tackle, the second foul is always what gets caught by the referee. The first one oftentimes goes unnoticed and and the person who got fouled, you see them, you've seen this in a lot of different uh, sporting events, the person who gets fouled gets up and it's just like, where's that person at? And they begin running after the person and they're going to retaliate in their form of vigilante justice for that offense that the referee missed, right? When a sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. There's nothing like unjust suffering, wrong going, unsentenced, unpunished to bring out the wrong in me. Just like we talked about in desire a couple weeks ago and we talked about in our emotions, it's not bad to be angry. It's not wrong. It's in fact, you're made in the image of God when you're angry. But scripture says in your anger, do not sin or it's not wrong to have a desire to see something occur. But folly puts me in the driver's seat of that sentencing, right? It puts me in the position of the referee now. I'm gonna judge. And if I'm honest, and, and, and you have to read this, we have to read this and realize he's, he's almost having a conversation inside of his own head. This is what's going on in the, for the author. And the, if I'm honest, in those moments, everything gets painted black and white. Every situation and every person. I get to the place, he's talking about getting to the place where I say, I'm righteous and they're wicked. And when I get to that place, that even justifies my unrighteous retaliation for what they've done, doesn't it? I'm righteous and they're wicked until I become them. But he's talking about a fact, a fact that we have to face in life. And that's this, that like in sport, in life, there's a lot of wrong that goes on under the sun that never gets caught, that never gets acknowledged. And in fact, it's even worse than that. Sometimes what's wrong gets rewarded by the world's standards, doesn't it? Sometimes people do wrong things and they get ahead by doing wrong things. People betray one another in relationships in order to get ahead in a certain situation. Have you ever had somebody who stole your idea and played it off as theirs and they benefited from that? How about you do all the work and someone else gets praised for it and they take all the credit? You wait your time and you pay your dues in a certain situation and then someone else gets the opportunity that you feel you deserve, the, you know, the Bruce Almighty moment, right? 
where Evan gets the job and he doesn't. Life's not fair, right? That's what the cry of our hearts are in those moments. When those little and big, the little petty crimes, when a crime is not quickly carried out and a sentence isn't carried out, those little and big daily deaths that we face when sin is done against us and we do sin against one another. Life's not fair. Good people often get dealt junk hands. And it awakens anger, sadness, disillusionment, despair. Those can all come just pounding at the door, can't they? It's like uh, Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic. She was kind of getting at some of this. I won't sing that because that too would be folly for us to sing. What the author here and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes is, is describing and he's expressing reality. That life under the sun is full of folly. It's full of madness. And he concludes something. He, and this guy, he had all of the economic, uh, he had all the wisdom, all the economic realities to search out everything. And he concludes that it's meaningless. What he means by saying meaningless, he's not saying that there's no meaning, but he's saying the meaning of all this is so far beyond my capacity to comprehend. I, I'm, throwing, it's a, I'm throwing my hands up in the air. It's meaningless. We should love this because part of what the Bible's given us permission to do is, is it, it's embracing the emotional and psychological realism of just how hard this is. Ah, lament. <laughs> This is, this is horrible. And it drives us to why, why, why? Why is this the state of life under the sun? Well, the whole Bible, we'd have to look at the whole Bible. It's, it's, it's hard to remember when we study passages like this that this is coming in the context of the entire Bible, right? The whole Bible gives us the big why, the umbrella for all these little things that fall underneath why folly and madness exist in the world. And why it is, is because the world is fallen and it's full of sin. Jonathan said it last week, he called it the busted Eden, right? We live in a not right version of what our hearts most deeply long for, most deeply desire, and were made for. And so when these sorts of situations arise, when the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve, when those sorts of situations happen and we see them, it rages against the, the eternity that God has set in my heart, right? I know that's not right. And what the author is, is, is inviting us to do by showing us this kind of internal dialogue in his own heart and his mind is saying, you're at a critical juncture when that stuff happens. Because you've got to go somewhere with that. And he's, he's talking about something that's really, really dangerous that, that can either lead you down the path of wisdom or the path of folly. And folly does this. Folly invites me in the suffering of it all to climb up onto the judge's seat. And folly says, you be judge, you be jury, you be executioner. You play God. Sometimes I'll say this, that injustice makes me think of just us, right? 
I just think about me. It's all I can think about. It's a big part of what we see unraveled if you study the entire story of Job, if you want to look at a story of, of suffering. When calamity visits a righteous man, and what do we see? There's two groups of people who walk with Job in the middle of all of that. Some are his friends, some of that's his wife. And what do his friends say? His friends, after sitting with him for a little while, they say, well, you know, clearly what's happening here is God's punishing you for something. They're, they're reducing what's happening in the moment to simple cause and effect. And basically saying, everything that's happening to you, you're just getting what's due you. That's what's going on here. We, we know what's going on here. What are they doing? They're playing judge. They're, they're making something black and white that they don't even know what they're talking about. But we know what's going on here. How about Job's wife? Job's wife says, curse God and die. I want you to judge the Lord. What's she doing? Judge the Lord and how he's handling this situation. Curse him and die. Do you see that both the friends of Job and the wife of Job are saying two very similar things in different ways, and that's this, that ultimately we can be in control that we're in the place of authority, that we're in the place of superiority, that we can be judge. And scripture says this, the Bible calls that folly. Proverbs says the single greatest definition of a fool is, is that you are right in your own eyes. I'm right in my own eyes, not in his eyes, in my own eyes. I'm self-right. And so the author here in Ecclesiastes, he's talking about this tough situation where he sees this stuff where the wicked are getting good things and the righteous are getting bad things. And, and he's tempted in this moment to do something, tempted to do what scripture says, uh, you know, you can become a fool yourself when you answer a fool according to his folly. You do what the fool does and you become a fool yourself. And he's saying it's hard it's hard to face the fact of this and embrace the reality that folly exists and navigate it with wisdom. So part of wisdom is this. I got to acknowledge what it is. It's broken. This is utterly broken, this world. It's, uh, it's full of injustice. It's full of wrong. And so the rest of the Bible teaches us things like, how do I grieve? How do I lament? How do I fight for justice in a right way? Not do the second foul in soccer, Right? But he's saying, I, I want to teach you something at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, I hope you guys came to think this morning because we're thinking. The very beginning, the, in, the initial kind of psychological, spiritual contours of how do I respond to this stuff. So the first thing is that I got I to embrace the fact of it, the reality of it. We live in a sin-wrecked world. I acknowledge that is what it is. But the first step is, is in wisdom is this. I am not in charge. I am not going to climb up on the judge's seat and be judge, jury, and executioner of what is right. Because I know this, later in Ecclesiastes 12, it says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, good or evil. The sentence may not be carried out quickly, but it will be carried out, and he is the one to carry it out. I don't have to be judged because he will be and he is. So first, I face the fact of it. 
I don't live in some naive reality that we could just, if we worked a little bit harder, we could fix everything. Secondly, how do I fight that folly or face that folly with wisdom? And we don't get the whole answer here. We would need the entire Bible to get the whole answer. And you could, you could argue this, that, that the thesis of the Bible is this, that the story, it's the story of the folly of sin triumphed by the wisdom of God. It's the whole Bible. The folly of sin and all that sin brought into the world triumphed by the wisdom of God. But he gives us an important start point and direction here. What do you know and what do you apply to your heart? You have to think in these moments. Because this, this, these, these sorts of situations, they're chaos, aren't they? They make us rage. And you got to stop and you got to think. The Navy SEALs, they train the Navy SEALs because they're in so many chaotic, broken situations that when everything goes nuts and berserk, I actually have to learn how to breathe correctly. They call it tactical breathing or box breathing. And it's an actual way of breathing that takes and focuses them on their breathing and on themselves in a correct way so that they can actually live in the middle of the chaos, function in the middle of the chaos. And there's science behind it. When you breathe this way, there's literal physical and psychological effects in focusing on something else, something in some ways that's under your control in the middle of the battle. And I'm going to bring that into the middle of the chaos. They box breathe. And that's what I see the author of Ecclesiastes doing. The righteous are getting what the wicked deserve. The wicked are getting what the righteous deserve. The bullets are flying. Okay, what am I going to do? How does he box breathe? How does he breathe and come to the one who gives life and breath and everything else, is what Scripture says. What does he say? Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. When I applied to my mind to know wisdom and observe the labor that is done on the earth, people getting no sleep day or night. Then I saw all God has done. What is he doing? Then I saw all that God has done. What we see him doing is in the face of the folly, in the fact of the folly, he's fighting in the midst of, of what he doesn't understand and he sees as meaningless by focusing on what he does know and on ultimately who he knows. He's, he's literally spiritual box breathing. He's tactical breathing right now and he's breathing the truth, the fear of the Lord into his life. He's saying, I'm gonna fear the Lord in this moment instead of fearing what I can't understand. That's what I'm going to do right now. It's a moment ultimately of his theology trumping his experience and his feelings. Something's got to come in and overtake what I'm experiencing right now. I'm going to fear the Lord right now. I'm going to look at what I do know. I'm going to look at what the Lord has done. 
And remember, all of wisdom literature tells us this, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job says the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And so knowing wisdom isn't just knowing what he knows or understanding what he understands. It's way more than that. It's having him. It's bringing him into the madness and into the folly. And so wise in this instance, it's wise to remember what you do know and what he has done because it keeps you, it keeps me from becoming Lord of the moment, right? Lord of our lives, Lord of our own situations, our circumstances, which are desperately difficult at times. And he knows that. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about it, all of the sufferings that he went through. He says that we were hard-pressed on every side and almost crushed and despaired. The Lord knows. He cares. Scripture says he bottles up our tears and even promises us that what he has prepared for us is actually going to be enhanced as a result of what we're suffering now. But the author is getting at something really important here. It's a well-worn, unwise, folly-filled path that we can take when we forget who he is and what he has done, and it's this. And this path only leads to greater suffering. When I see all this stuff going on in the world, it tempts me, if I don't remember who he is and what he has done, it tempts the righteous to become what's, what Ecclesiastes says is over-righteous. Ecclesiastes 7 says, do not be over-righteous, do not be over-wise. Isn't that an interesting statement? How could you be over-righteous and over-wise? What it's getting at is, is that there's a, there's a place in my heart that I can get where I can actually begin to look at things and say, those things are bad, but I'm without flaw. That I'm so busy. Have you ever been there? Everybody should be nodding their heads when I say yes to this, but no one's going to nod because that's a rhetorical question. You ever been to a place where you're, you see someone's sin so clearly that you become utterly blind to any of it in you? My comparison to them obscure, obscures my capacity to see my own sin. And oftentimes, it's just a less overt version of the very same thing. I'll tell people all the time, if I see it in you, it's because it's in me somewhere. That's how I can see it. Let me give you an example. Have you ever had somebody, I've had this happen. I won't go into the story because it's, it's racy. Uh, but I've had somebody before befriend me and um, be really kind and be really generous to me and develop a relationship with me only to get ahead in their life. And as soon as they got what they wanted, they dropped me. Like, peace, I'm done with you, right? So established a relationship only to get what they wanted and then as soon as they got what they wanted, they were gone. Probably everybody has some version of that in their life, right? Where they feel like someone used me to get what they wanted. And we would look at that and say, man, that's wrong. That's wicked. That's sin. It is. But how about this? And I've done this. There are times where I've done kind things 
and been generous and developed relationships with people. And I've done all that stuff in order to give me a sense of I'm good. Right? To give me a sense of my self-worth and my value. So I'm still just doing something with them for me, right? It's a case of the you for me's, right? I did it for you for me. And one of those instances, we can look at that and say, man, that's wrong what that person did, using someone to get ahead. But I can do the same thing. I can, I can be kind and generous to people just to make me feel good about me. And that's simply just using someone to get ahead. You see it? Subtle. One's much more culturally acceptable and much more, uh, less relationally destructive, but it's the same root. In this relationship, I'm thinking about me. One we call wrong and one we call sin. The other we pass off. But there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing in life like these situations, these unjust situations suffering to make me forgetful and invite me to minimize my own sin. I'm righteous. They're wicked. And folly makes me forget. It makes me foggy. <laughs> Another F word. I'm just full of them this morning. Foggy makes me, or folly makes me foggy and forget what I do know, what the Lord has done for me, and apply that to my mind. Because remember, in here, he's really clear. I'm righteous and they're wicked, right? He's talking about how we can think that way. Well, let's talk for a second how folly makes us forget what makes someone righteous. What does the Bible say makes someone righteous? Faith, not works. So what makes me right is faith in what he did, not in what I've done. And that's not just in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, you know, for it is by grace you are saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's true in the New Testament, but that was true in the Old Testament. It's been true forever. Abraham in Genesis 15, he was declared righteous by faith, right? A faith that trusted God in crazy, unthinkable circumstances, so folly makes us forget that what makes someone righteous is faith in Jesus, not our works. And faith is a gift from God, so we can't boast. Therefore, we are righteous only by the grace of faith, period. And Scripture says this, without that, we're all hopelessly wicked. We're all on the wrong side of the bench. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. He's quoting Psalm 53. And all it takes, for me at least, is a scenario like this where the wicked are getting what the righteous deserve to bring my wicked side out. I begin to scheme, I decide what's right, what's wrong, what's justice, and I become God. He's talking about a really, really critical internal moment when all this is going on and I become afraid, I have a choice. And by the grace of God, I have this choice to either fear the Lord or in fear, I have to be the Lord. 
And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, wisdom in the face of disorienting folly, when the busted and broken ways of the world is washing into your neat little manicured garden of a life, he's saying, careful. Because the tendency is going to be to try to be God rather than to let God be with you in it. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, come to me, all ye who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, I'll give you answers. I'll give you rest. I'll give you me. Because answers aren't enough for what you truly need. <laughs> answers aren't, aren't going to answer how to face the folly. So let's talk about three footholds as we come to the table. Footholds for fearing the Lord amidst the folly. The folly's real. I have to remember what I know. What are the footholds? The first one is this. At the very end of the passage, he says, no one can comprehend while it goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they can't really comprehend it. Now, what he's saying there is, is that the first foothold is this. You and I have to embrace our limits and our capacity to understand what's going on. Which, if you are thinking right now, you will admit that's tough, right? We believe, I mean, we are Western, educated, upwardly mobile, children of the scientific age, which all those things are all fine and good, but they can't fix everything. We believe we can understand everything, and with enough understanding, with enough knowledge, with enough money, with enough effort, we can fix everything. And what he's saying here, if you're going to have a foothold, if you're going to live in wisdom, you're going to have to embrace that there's limits to your capacity to understand. And embracing no limits to your capacity to understand, it's only going to compound your suffering. It's already hard enough. That's making suffering squared. Job, at the end of Job, God says this, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? He's effectively saying, son, you're in over your head here. I love you, and I'm doing something here, but you, you do not understand it. And Job, Job, <laughs> what did Job conclude? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. What's he do? He embraces his limits, and he lets God be God. Secondly, focus on what you do know. Focus on what you know, on what he has done. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of that faith you have. He's given it to you, and he's perfecting it in you, and oftentimes it's in situations like this that he's, he's refining it. It's like the crucible that your faith is becoming strong in. Acknowledge that the Lord is working. Choose to look at what he has done, not at what you don't understand. That's what the author's driving us to. Because scripture says this, and this is a hard thing to swallow. We can talk about it like it's on a Hallmark card. He works all things for the good of those who love and know him. But that's not a Hallmark card saying it's a promise written on, in the blood of Jesus for you on the cross. That's the truth. That's spiritual box breathing, tactical breathing, bringing truth into the moment. So we got to focus on what we know. 
and what he has done. So what do we know? What has he done? Let's talk about that as we come to the table, okay? Because we, you and I, have a much clearer picture of, of who he is and what he has done than the author of Ecclesiastes did based on where we live in time, space, history, right? How did God respond to the wickedness, the folly, and the fruit of sin in the world? He who was righteous, because he's righteous, towards the unrighteous. Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. You hear it? We all, that's the southern form of all y'all in the Bible, right? We all y'all like sheep have gone astray. We're all unrighteous. We're all wicked. He's the only righteous one. Each of us has turned to our own ways. Each of us, apart from his grace, is just wise in our own eyes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the gospel in this passage? In Ecclesiastes, that the sentence that the wicked deserved fell on him. That's the gospel. The wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians says, which is foolishness to, to the world, that Christ, the righteous, he got what the wicked deserve. And the wicked, us, got what the righteous isn't it funny when we read a passage like this? I'll at least admit this, and if you can admit it, I would encourage you to do so. When we read a passage like this, everyone naturally identifies with the righteous. Like, yeah, I know what it feels like, you know, when the wicked get what I deserve. Isn't that funny? We don't at all naturally identify with, yeah, I was wicked. And I know what I deserved, and I didn't get it. I got what the righteous deserved. I got what Christ deserved. I see myself as righteous and not based on grace. I see myself righteous based on my works, my merit. I'm a good person. This is what I deserve. We think we're better. We think we're deserving. And Scripture says that's wicked. That's sin. We can actually come to this table being guilty of praising him with our lips and our hearts being far from this grace. <laughs> there's not joy at this table because I deserve this table. Rather than, man, there's joy at this table because I didn't deserve this table. I deserve this table only on the merit of what Christ has done. And so when we come to this table, what we're doing, like the Navy SEALs and box breathing, right? What we're doing when we come to this table is just we're acknowledging what we know about him and what he has done for us. That's what communion does. It's a spiritual sacrament that renews and feeds our hearts on the truth. It brings that oxygen into the moment. And when we do that, the author of Ecclesiastes, I know there's a lot in here, says that a gift comes with that experience. Listen to what he says. When he embraces his limits and he focuses on what he does know and what the Lord has done. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing 
better for a person under the sun to do than eat and drink and be glad, then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. God has given them under the sun. Joy will accompany them in their toil. It's a powerful, pregnant little sentence. What's he saying? He's saying, when I remember, when I embrace my limits and I stop playing God and judge, and when I remember who he is and what he has done, and I feed on that reality, a joy accompanies me in the toil, in the difficulty in life under the sun. Not in spite of it, in it. I received the grace to enjoy and receive and the character and the perseverance and the hope to fight through and, and stay in the difficulty with even joy in this life under the sun because we know something in him. I have life that extends beyond life under the sun. An eternity where folly and sin and death will have no more place. And so instead of comprehension, instead of answers to all the confusion of the folly of this world, instead of comprehension, I get a companion. It's powerful, y'all. Do not miss this. It's a joy that accompanies. Why is he talking about it like he's personifying joy? Because it is a person. It's Jesus. It's a personified joy that accompanies you, Christ with us and in us, the hope of glory. So when you face these sorts of situations, you do not face them alone. You face them with the Jesus who was righteous and suffered ultimate injustice. He suffered the deepest relational betrayals. He suffered abandonment. He suffered social shame. He suffered public ridicule. He suffered perceived failure. He led his organization nowhere. It looked like an utter failure to the world, and yet it was God's wisdom to save it. That's what we breathe when we come to this table. That the folly of this world is not the final say. Halla freaking Luya. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. He got what we deserved. The wicked get what the righteous deserved. I deserve what he gives me now, and he gives me everything that was his. He loved us who were his enemies so that we would be enemies no more. <laughs> we're friends and we're family. And so if you're in Christ this morning, as you come to this table, I'm going to pray for us here in a second. If you all want to get ready to go. He says, do this often. <laughs> you got to box breathe often. You got to feed at woman wisdom's table often. Because if you don't feed at her table, Proverbs 9 says, you'll feed at woman folly's table. So eat and be strengthened and be renewed in the grace that, that even though I was wicked, he gave me his righteousness. And I, I, there's no more condemnation for me. I'm set free. If you're not in Christ this morning, Paul warns us in this sacrament. He says, if you're not in Christ, don't eat at this table. Because this table is a table for somebody who said, I have stepped off the throne of my life and I'm not judge anymore. <laughs> I've stepped off the throne and saying, I'm not right in my own eyes. I needed what Jesus has done for me and I, I've by faith received that and now I come to the table and I feed on that. 
So if you're still in that position, I'd invite you to come to him this morning before you come to the table. And then he also commands us in, in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine our hearts. And here's where I would invite you to examine. If you're in Christ this morning, would you ask this question, where have I become overrighteous? Where have I, in looking at all the things that I see going on around me, forgotten my own sin and my own brokenness, my own wickedness, my own need for his grace? And would I actually allow him to show me that? Because when he shows me that, I'll actually know then how to move out into the world. And I'll address those things. I'll face that stuff, but I'll do it with humility. I'll do it with his wisdom and his strength, his righteousness, not my own. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus. Oh, wait a sec. I had already started praying. When you're ready, come down to the middle. Uh, there'll be people here ready to serve you. Just put out your hands uh, when you're ready. Take your time. Everybody's gone for the fourth, it looks like, so there's going to be plenty of time uh, to sit at the table. Uh, receive what he's done uh, for you and, and drink deeply of that reality. Uh, if you're gluten-free, that's here on the far side. They'd be happy to give that to you. If you need prayer, cross your arms and somebody would be happy to pray for you. Uh, kind of go out on the, on the sides. Um, and if you come forward uh, with your kids, if they're not partaking of the sacrament, it's great to bring them up with you. Uh, just help the servers know if they are or aren't um, actually partaking of the elements, all right? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you uh, for this word. Uh, forgive us, Lord, uh, for the places where um, in folly we can become right in our own eyes, Lord, and um, forget what we do know and what you have done uh, for us. Lord, I pray uh, you'd minister to our hearts uh, through this sacrament. Remind us of your great love for us, the truth that the righteous got what the wicked deserved and the wicked what the righteous. And I pray we'd find deep joy in that, Lord. And out of that place, uh, Lord, we would step into the folly and the madness of this world knowing that we can't fix it all, but we can live differently in it. Uh, we can live as those who live under you and fear the Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.